everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin, host of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter, breaks down pro cycling pretty much pedal stroke by pedal stroke. I'm here with Andrew Vance of the Choose the Hard Way podcast. Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your podcast before we get into a little bit of Dauphiné talk and breaking down episodes one and two of Tour de France Unchained, the Netflix documentary about the tour? Oddly, that's not the name of the documentary in French, but we'll, we'll discuss that. But do you want to get a quick word in about your podcast? I, I can't wait for what's to come here on this episode, going pedal stroke by pedal stroke together, Spencer. Yeah, so Choose the Hard Way is a show about how hard things build stronger humans. Big intersection with the world of cycling. And this week, my guest is Ian Boswell. We go deep on his life and times and what happened inside that elite lead group at Unbound Gravel. The texting, the mud, we've got it all <laughs> Check us out at Hardway Pod on social, choosethehardway.com. You can find links to all listening platforms and look for Choose the Hardway wherever you listen. I thought gravel, it's like you have to track down a primary source. It's like you're in a freshman yeah. year history class. It's like, oh no, you have to fly to England and get a, a, a handwritten note from a review at the Globe Theater of William Shakespeare's Henry V to, to actually cite this in your paper. Yeah, we're going to need to exhume Napoleon to get the inside scoop on Waterloo. So we'll be right back. <laughs> well, Andrew, do, I just wanted to, uh, to gather us all here in remembrance of, of A, Richard Carapaz's career, and B, your take that Jonas Vinegard would, would not even disappoint at a future Grand Tour, never line up at another Grand Tour after winning the Tour de France last year. He looked unbelievable at this Dauphiné. I think I did like an hour-long podcast yesterday on the move about the Dauphiné. I think we could just sum it up with, oh my God, Jonas Vindegaard's really good. Um, and we saw what happened when uh, anyone, some one person tried to attack him, Richard Carapaz on stage five. He put it down. Like he, it was uh, kind of unbelievable to watch. And then Carapaz got dropped from the chase group and was like 33 minutes down by the end of the race. So I don't think we're going to see many people try to attack him in the future that aren't Taddy Pogacar, but did you want to quick, get a quick word in on this? Defend the take? Double down on the take? Okay, so perhaps he will line up at the tour, although that's, not still, there, not a, so yeah. that's still, not, still not a certainty. I stand by my take that I don't believe he will win the 2023 Tour de France. Yes, he had an amazing performance this past week, and that is not the Tour de France. It's not the level of pressure. It's not the level of intrigue within the team. And when we get to episode two, of Unchained Life Inside the Tour de France or whatever the subtitle is. <laughs> you know, I think that we can talk a little bit about why those dynamics might actually result in him not winning the Tour de France. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I tend to think that the guy, he always looks bewildered, bewildered like a deer in headlights. He never really doesn't perform. Like he's had one bad day maybe ever at the Tour. He looks pretty good here. Taddy Pogacar is hurt. That's not ideal, but part of me does kind of agree with you that Pogacar being on the slow track, he's just away training, not doing these warm-up races. You know, if he can get through the first week of that tour and it starts hard, that's the only problem is like Vindegaard was good on stage five of the Dauphiné, which is almost a like carbon copy of the first three stages of the tour. Um, you know, but it, realistically, is he going to take a minute in the first three stages? I don't think so. Like Pogacar could probably not ride for a month and still just like hold wheels in the Peloton. Like I, 
I think if Pogacar can get through that first week, that this is almost beneficial to him. I know that's crazy to say, but I thought he was came in way too hot at the tour last year. And like he could build into this. He's got no pressure. All the pressure's on Vinegard. The Yumbo team uh, seems, I think you, you like said they're emo. There does seem to be a lot going on inside that team, as we saw in this documentary. So, you know, I, I wouldn't lock him in. I saw some people on Twitter being like, wow, most boring tour ever. It hasn't happened yet, but people are already saying it's, the most boring tour ever because Vinegard's going to cakewalk. I I would not uh, would not call it over just yet because a we haven't begun and b this could get complicated for Vinegard. But also, just I want to ask you a quick question, Richard Carapaz. What's going on there? Before we get to Carapaz, stand back. I'm about to enter the room with a platter of sizzling hot fajitas. And I'm going to go to gravel for a second. I want to talk for a moment about Keegan Swenson dominated oh, yeah, unbound, unbound, about this, right? Like we're not going to go deep into unbound here, but I want to talk about Keegan for a moment because Keegan, he has the ability, he has the legs and psychologically he has the eye of the tiger. And if you look at the lifetime Grand Prix YouTube series, which I believe that you have watched, correct? uh watch bits of it so, yeah you know like bits and pieces it's i'd say it's worth watching if you haven't checked it out but in that series i mean he talks about how he's constantly leveraging disinformation on social media to get in the minds of his competitors he's playing games and it's clear that he's not only winning at the physiological level and i talked to my coach uh zach nair this week who wrote the analysis of Keegan's ride at Unbound. He's also analyzed rides from Wild, from Matthew Vanderpool, from some of the world's top riders. And he says that at a physiological level, if you look at Keegan's performance at Unbound and his sprint at the end of that 10-hour race, he said, there's no question he is on a world tour level and has actual Galactico potential physiologically, which honestly shocked me. I didn't think that he was quite that good, but Zach's a guy who's gone deep He's looked at all the data and being able to take that and step into the world tour and do everything else that you have to do that we see in Unchained, for example, is a different story. But uh, Keegan doesn't just have the legs. He knows how to get inside the minds of his competitors. He's highly confident and he knows how to rattle people. And if we jump to episode two, which I'm going to do, I'm just going to jump in. And there's that, that exchange when Wout's going to the podium Pagacha is on the trainer and Pagacha basically says, Hey, wow, thanks for dropping your teammates. I really appreciated that because otherwise, wow, I would have been screwed. He knows how to play the mind game in a way that I don't believe Jonas uh, inherently what? can do as a human. Was it a mind game or was it just stating a fact? <laughs> yeah, I would have been screwed if I, you actually knew that you had teammates in this race. I think it was a, it's a yes and. I think he knew what he was doing when he made that statement. And I think that's the kind of writer he is. I also think that not participating in the series says something about his salary and the level of financial backing from UAE and their desire not to have the interference or distraction of having the ASO and a camera crew up in their business during the race. And that's just like another psychological flex from a truly psychologically dominant competitor. Did he lose the race last year? Yes. Does he probably believe he has 100% confidence in his ability to win the tour this year? I'd say the answer is also yes. As it relates to Carapaz, ah, yeah. Gosh, you Too might much be right about the that tiger. 
There's too yeah. much. <laughs> He's like jockeying. Oh yeah, I'm going to mentally dominate this guy by by actually pulling him for two kilometers on this climb and then just getting smoked. Um, yeah, I think that was kind of uh, if he draw. I guess if he drops Vindegard, we're all saying, "Oh my God, Carapaz is back." But that but man, you said a lot in there. I'm like unpacking this in my mind as I'm trying to say something, but. <laughs> Hey, put on your bucket hat. Let's go. Let me just try to fumble through this carapace thing. I I would be concerned. I I think anytime I say anything about Richard Carapace on any platform, I just get blown up with uh, people saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Carapace is the best cyclist of all time. But yeah, this does not look good. I I, I would be deeply concerned about EF's chances in the overall. Like if they're going into this tour to think that they're going to compete in the overall, like they didn't show anything at this Dauphiné that they have a carapace that can do that. I don't know what's going on. People are saying, well, it's not a choice that he's out of shape. It's like, well, clearly he's not preparing in a way that the other riders are because he's a different rider than he was in 2021 when he got third at the tour. On Keegan Swenson, probably, like, that's probably correct. Like, he's doing big numbers for 10 hours. The only thing I would push back on is, is that's one race. That's not 21 races in a row. and you know, is he doing some of these efforts at the world tour are so, so high, like, uh, five minutes for 700 Watts, you know, up, up the Poggio to stay with the lead group at Milan San Remo. Can he do that? You know, I would have questions about that. Like, is this FTP 550, 550 Watts? That's, you know, where it maybe falls apart for me. Like, but clearly for racing for 10 hours and staying about 300 Watts the whole time and then sprinting at 1200 Watts, he's got it. So, I mean, he could definitely have a career in the world tour. Do you like, I actually was wondering like, wow, I mean, how often like this sucks, right? He's just going to keep going out to these middle of nowhere races and riding around. He's hot. It's uncomfortable. Why doesn't he go to the world tour and make some money? I assume the guy was making like 50 grand a year. You, you did some digging around. He might be making like half a million dollars a year doing this. I was kind of shocked to hear that. If that's true, that would explain why he's never going to go learn another sport. Like it's, it's truly learning the physical part is not a problem for Keegan. It's just like if, like, if you're a great table tennis player and then you wanted to go play tennis, you know, it's just a very different sport. So obviously he's probably not going to just start from scratch at 29. Yeah. A couple of things here. One, I think we should have Zach on, on a future episode just to talk about this power analysis component of Keegan vis-a-vis world tour level writers. Just when I was talking to him just in conversation, he specifically talked about Milan San Remo versus unbound and i think that that would just be a really fun thing to dig into second as it relates to the other point that you made which i'm now forgetting can you refresh my the memory money, that he's just making so yeah, much yeah, money yeah, that money he would thing. never yeah the money thing right so sources familiar are telling me that keegan is doing quite well and if we think about what happened with the gravel racer whose name shall never be mentioned again when he had that look from EF and was considering going to the world tour that fell apart because the EF offer was, you know, low world tour money, which I don't even know if it was six figures. Keegan currently is doing quite well. I don't know if he's hitting half a million, but I'm hearing that he's doing, you know, somewhere between 300 and 500, which, you know, to go do races that you enjoy doing, and to run your own program to get to train from your home and have a much more relaxed schedule than what we see these world tour riders doing 
you know, saying no to making 80 grand to go see if you potentially the following year could make a bigger salary is uh, something that's understandable. I mean, particularly at his, his age going onto the road when we're seeing people come onto the scene at 19, 20 that are just annihilating world tour legends. That's kind of a tough proposition, I would think. I don't know how much upside there is for him. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of easy for him to win these races, though. I mean, he is just better than everybody else. And then what, you're going to go to Roubaix and fight to finish inside the time limit? Uh, I don't know. I, that would be a hard sell, especially since he can just be at his beautiful homes as much as he wants. Uh, he's got a great life. I didn't know he was making that much money. Keegan, never stop racing gravel, if that's true. Make them pull you off the gravel. Ride until they will no longer deposit money into your checking account because that is a, an amazing amount of money to make doing uh, events close to your home. Um, and just one thing I wanted to say before we went over to Unchained. Christoph Laporte, good rider. One, two stages, two out of the first three stages at Dauphiné. Um, I looked it up, almost as many wins. Since, as I think he has one less win than Wout Van Aert since he's joined Jumbo Visma. Uh, just, just something to note. I mean, is this ever going to come to a head where Laporte's like, hey, man, I'm actually your biggest competitor and I'm on your team. I, I'm curious to see how this develops. I think we're about to talk about Unchained episode two. And while we're on the Christophe Laporte topic, my mother-in-law, who... You know, she's pro cycling adjacent because she knows me. She's definitely not someone who follows the sport. For some reason, I got a text from her last week saying, Hey, you know who you look like? You look like this guy, Winner Laporte. I was I was like, Winner Laporte? Who is that? And I was like, <laughs> Do you mean do you mean Christophe Laporte? And she said, Yes, Christophe Laporte exclamation point. And I wasn't quite sure how to take that. We can move on now. That's good. I there's a there's a very prominent cycling writer that thinks I, I don't know if I can go along with her on this theory that thinks part of Yumbo Visma's success and popularity is because they hire the hottest guys in the sport and get them on one team. Um, she might just have a thing for Christophe Laporte, but I think I would take it as a compliment. Okay, thanks. <laughs> um, so, Thank you, so unfortunately, we're gonna have to like rewind a little bit. So. Tour, or Tour de France Unchanged, which actually is called Tour de France in the heart of the Peloton in French, which I think is a better name. Do you think they didn't do that because they didn't think people would know what Peloton meant? Yeah, just I think about my personal experience with being a co-host of this podcast. And when I tell people in the general public, normies, that this is a, one of the things that I do, they always say, oh, it's a podcast about Peloton. Peloton, it should, the it should bike, be. Right? We would be so much, be more, much successful. more popular. Yeah. Yeah. We'd probably have an AG1 uh, sponsorship by now. Inside Tracker, you know, uh, we'd sleep eight. We'd have all of them lined up. But yeah, I think that in the English speaking world, Peloton, the exercise bike training brand, has effectively owned that word. And that's why we got this dumb title. Well, it'd be funny if they sued them for using the word peloton obviously they're not crazy that wouldn't happen but you know so you've teed me up perfectly so yes that would be confusing right because they what what is peloton i thought that's a thing i have in my basement that i don't ride well they they put us in here it's let's, let's get it off off the top it's beautiful it's a well done documentary they explain nothing and it's in french mainly so if you don't know what a peloton is you're like oh wow i am what is a green jersey why are some of these people in yellow jerseys what is going on like did you feel like you're just coming into this thing and it's, there's no, I feel like there was very little explanation of like what the Tour de France is. Why are there different classifications? Why are there different colored jerseys? 
why is this important? I just felt like there was no context given to start the series. And I, I, I'm a lover of the French language. Did you feel like that's going to be a hard hur- hurdle for a lot of people to get past? I think that this is serving the purposes of ASO, which was the primary aim of the documentary series, I would think. So I think ASO is winning. I have a lot of quibbles with various aspects of it. If I were an audience of one, or if we core cyclists were the actual intended audience of this, but we're not, right? They're going after the average person who's watching Netflix. Someone like me, who I watched the swing of fling i don't remember what the pga one is called i think it's full swing but i wish it was spring fling or swing of fling yeah that'd be better yeah yeah bring your own briefcase you might leave in it after this merger um <laughs> yeah so you know i think that's the viewer who they're going after like i enjoyed the pga one i had never i'm not into golf i don't enjoy playing it but i think that's the viewer they want for this show i want to talk about the title a bit more for a minute so we have this title unchained and i'm trying to think about i mean if we take this at a really literal level if if you don't have a chain on your bike spencer where are you going yeah you're just in big trouble do people know what chains are you know that was my next thought is that (laughs) too dense what is a chain but yeah yeah, unchained or does it mean i i found the title odd and and slightly off-putting if i'm being like it's like what is this like Tour de France gone wild. Tour de France after dark. Like they can't control this tour. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah, I had a real, a real, real Cinemax after 11 p.m. in yeah. 1987 type of vibe with this title. Yeah. What's going to go down in that uh, post-race massage? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Moving on. But did you so they, so they set the scene with like the Vodders and EF. I, I did think someone pointed out, a listener actually pointed out with Vodders that he says, people think we're not a serious team. This is in reference to EF. That's not true. Smash cut two. We're the worst team in the Peloton. Hey guys, we might all get fired if we don't start winning races. So a little bit of, uh, of uh, incongruity there where we, we, don't, we take this seriously. Don't, we're not goofballs. Oh wait, we can't win a race to save our life. So the, the whole, you know, and I thought the whole EF thing was you know, slightly interesting, but my issue with these first two episodes or the first episode in particular is it's telling us a little bit. So it's like Stefan Bissinger, this means a lot to him. We've prepared for two years for this time trial. Oh my God, he cannot grip the road whatsoever. He's falling down. And then there's like no examination. Well, why did that happen? Well, how did you, clearly the tires were overinflated. I mean, you could see him on the corners where he wasn't falling and he could barely get through them. So it's like, how was that mistake made? I don't know. To me, like that would be kind of more interesting to dig into, but it's more of just like, oh, whatever, we'll move on. And, you know, I guess they were following the teams they were following. The, the Tour de France 2022 started with a time trial. So that's what they, uh, they covered, a rainy time trial. They don't really go into any of the GC riders. They just kind of follow Bissinger. But they have a camera with Quickstep who had the stage winner, Yves Lampart. Did you feel like they kind of yada yada over? That part, I, I felt a little confused coming out of that time trial about like what had actually happened. The EF choice was an interesting one. The Bissinger, like we worked for two years on this time trial. I don't believe that. Do you? I mean, defi- it's like if you're in a courtroom, it's like define work. Was he training? <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of how I. But I mean, they, they had the, the uh, like in the wind tunnel, there were just a lot of engineered moments. And I do think of all teams in the world tour, I still think 
EF is the absolute very best at marketing, it's storytelling. And Vauders is a master showman. I mean, he's like Vince McMahon level at finding a way to create these high con- contrast narratives that people get sucked into, whether they like Vauders, whether they dislike him, whether they like the team or not. He finds a way to get this team in the news and to make them the center of attention. And I thought it was an interesting choice from given that this is this big ASO controlled project. There was the French pro I've, I've seen Lantern Rouge and everyone else going off about, you know, should there have been more English language and who is this French pro? I mean, man, I've been following the sport for 35 years. I have no idea who that guy is. I guess he's a personality on French coverage of the tour. Do you know who I'm talking about? The exposition man, the, the Will Buxton of the documentary. Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually, I thought it was more of the one of the more interesting things about the documentary, like showing me there's all this happening, like David Gadu giving interviews to French TV where he's like saying really interesting stuff. And it's like, I just never hear that. You know, I never, there's this whole other world that we don't know about. So I kind of, I kind of liked that, that it was just this person I didn't know giving exposition. Um, It was fine. I mean, maybe you wouldn't do it in French, I guess, if you were going to do it to try to appeal to an American audience, but also like what Parasite was a major movie. I guess people can get over (laughs) subtitles if they need to. No, completely. And I think that that's a great point. And I think in general, that's what this series thus far is continually surfacing to me is that from a storytelling point of view, cycling has such high potential. And when you're able to connect to some of the drama happening, which I think Vauders does a really great job of foregrounding that, or you get to connect with the writers more personally through really basic things that we've expected in television coverage of sports forever since we started watching it, but don't get in professional cycling, it really does enhance your understanding and how much you enjoy the sport. So like the whole thing with, uh, with Dylan or with some of these other writers, Bissinger as well. It's like, great. You're getting to know these people a little bit better while at home, eating his oatmeal, driving his BMW and, uh, unpacking his bike, right? Like these are all amazing moments and just getting basic behind the scenes stuff that you never get because they're talking about an image of a castle or they're cutting away from the attack right as it's happening to show you a vineyard or, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's been happening like more and more the past few weeks too. I feel like I'm missing entire parts of races because I'm seeing vineyards. Yeah, totally. But I mean, these are the dimensions of the sport that help humanize it, connect people to the personalities and could make it an actual mainstream thing. Maybe does it have that potential? Is that the intention of ASO? Do they want to actually grow? The well, I don't think there? ASO did this doctor. This was a box to box production. I guess ASO commissioned it, but they couldn't. I, there's there's no way without ASO's go ahead that they would have been able to get inside the race the way that they did. Yeah, they definitely needed ASO's permission. It's I guess I hadn't thought about it. If ASO is is the commissioner, if or the the you know, if they're the de-, de Medici's for this piece of art, then yeah, I guess they would be the ultimate ones making decisions. And it did feel very ASO. Now that you mention it, it did kind of feel like someone in France making decisions about what people want to see about the tour. 
I thought and my wife had to keep reminding me like this is a Tour de France documentary, not a cycling documentary. So you can't directly compare it to Drive to Survive or Spring Fling and, and uh, Full On Tennis Attack, whatever that one's called. But I wanted like more wow at home. You know, it's like what yeah. I think you asked the great question. What the frick was Jonas doing for four years before he won the tour? Was he just riding through fields in Denmark? That's kind of what it looked like when they cut to him for like five seconds. And it's like, I sucked at riding bikes. And it's like him just riding around on a gravel path in Denmark. So I wanted a little bit more them at home. Like I thought they should have leaned into that and that would have been the strength. Um, we'll get to, actually, we should move on to episode two. Cause I think that was one of the better ones of the series, but, um, episode, I think stage two, they cover Fabio Jakobsen wins. This is an episode one, um, comes back from a big crash. I thought, I mean, I've like, feel like I've seen that a lot, but you know, maybe for a casual fan, that's kind of a crazy story. That was good. I thought Patrick Lefebvre actually came off really good. He tends to put his foot in his mouth a lot and doesn't really have modern views on like spousal abuse and and sexual assault, which makes it hard to kind of get behind the team. But I thought in this documentary specifically, he looked really, really level-headed and like, wow, this is a guy making good decisions versus Vodders, where I felt like this is a guy who talks for a living and doesn't probably really know what's going on inside the team from a sporting perspective. Well, speaking of putting your foot in your mouth, I have misidentified Fabio Jakobsen as Dylan Groenwegen. So let me just transpose those things. So I was talking about, that's a pretty big mistake to make. <laughs> yeah, um, two, two sides yeah, of the so, same crash there. Oops, oops, sorry. But could you believe how many times they showed that crash? My wife was like, stop showing it. <laughs> it was. Well, you're not even like in episode eight. They show it like 15 times. And it's like, we're, we're, we're 20 stages ago. But yeah, that was, I guess it was. I actually found it to be somewhat interesting because you can actually, the 50th time you see the crash, you see that the barriers were not, they're not correct barriers. And if right. they would have had the ASO barriers, it wouldn't have happened. You know, he probably just would have been kind of scratched up. So like, the one benefit of seeing that crash so many times is I did start to see like, oh, that is like how small course, how small corner cutting on course design and like building can actually really hurt somebody. In, indeed it can it can hurt them very bad so yeah moving on to episode two as you noted the whole Jonas angle so there's the focus on wow the thing that really jumped out at me was there's just this clear tension within the team and wow is on team all about me really I mean he does hold it back on the Perry Roubaix stage grudgingly yeah, and, yeah. right <laughs> and after the stage he's clearly like i could have i could have won that stage and he clearly was aggrieved and it was incredible to relive that moment and to see gosh just the level of disorganization when there were the multiple bike changes again my wife molly I, we had to like pause it i had to explain to her like what's going on here that's probably not a good sign for the efficacy of the storytelling <laughs> in the documentary but i was like okay like he borrowed a, a bike from a guy who was too tall and then he switched to another bike then he switched to a third bike then the team car pulled up so that wasn't super clear when you get to the um the end of the previous stage the mountain stage where wout decides to just go ahead and drop everyone including his teammates and then you have that awkward moment afterwards where the team director goes into Wout's, uh, when Wout's getting rubbed down by the Swanee, is like, hey, you know, Jonas, uh, Jonas is upset. You need to apologize to him. And then Jonas actually says, yeah, I 
I was shocked that this happened. That, you know, if we think about teams that have been highly successful at winning the tour, it's very difficult for me to imagine a team leader, number one, tolerating that in the moment, number two, team management tolerating it, and number three, the leader himself not having the ability to go directly to the writer and just saying, hey, man, what the fuck? Like, what, are you, what are you doing? This is so it's funny because later in the series, you'll see Jasper Philipson celebrates the win because he thought he's like, I didn't think it was physically possible for anyone because it was a sprint stage with like a little hill at the end for anyone yeah. to get away because we we're going so fast. He did look back at Jonas and just leave him. I, I think I defended the decision in, in the moment during the day. Watching that, I was like, man, you, you just could have waited for him. What are you doing? Because then you have two guys to work with you. Yates and Vinegard are going to pull. It's just going to help you. They're not going to beat you. I thought it was a bizarre decision um, upon rewatch. But wow, this is where it gets complicated. Wow, it's the bigger star in that team. I mean, okay, Jonas, Absolutely. let's say he wins this tour. He wins two Tour de France's. That's amazing. Not many people ever win multiple tours. And I feel like the documentary did not do a good job of contextualizing this with like Van, Vanderpool, Pogacar, and Van Art. These are like maybe some of the most talented writers of all time. So in Wout's mind, he's probably thinking like, I could go on you know, a team like Alpes and De Kunuk and just be the star like Vanderpool is. Like, why am I even wasting my time on this team? So that's where it gets a little complicated, where Wout is almost volunteering his time doing any work for Jonas. And Jonas is not, I, I, you have a point, Jonas is not the leader of that team. Like Wout's the the one driving the bus there. And Jonas is kind of along for the ride. Question for you, Spencer. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. Do you think Wout is thinking about breaking that lifetime Tour de France stage win record in his career? That's a good question. I, you know, I would think if he was doing that, he would have gone for the stage win on stage 21. If you remember, he You're didn't right. have the skin suit on. He didn't even sprint. He stayed back with Jonas, which... I thought was maybe, maybe I didn't quite appreciate how much it meant to him that Jonas really did gift him the stage win on stage 20. Um, I like rewatched that and Jonas really just kind of sits up once he hears that either him or Wout's, Wout's going to win. So yeah, there is a little bit of an arc with their relationship through this tour. But yeah, if you were thinking he's going after the stage win record, he would be a little bit more aware of, I should maybe try to win this sprint stage that my team is totally fine with me going for. That's, you know, I actually have a hard time understanding it because at times it does seem like he really wants to win stages and that's all that matters. Like, uh, I think it's later in the documentary. He like just, Jonas says, I would prefer it if you don't go for the stage. And then he like, is like, I really want to go for the stage and you're going to have multiple guys crash. You're going to crash. I'm going to leave you and try to contest the stage. So yeah, I don't know. I'm confused. I don't, I, maybe he doesn't quite know if he's going for it or not. What do you think? I mean, he even says, Winning is a very special thing. He he loves to win. I mean, all of these guys love to win. Wout is a killer. He's an absolute killer. He loves to win. I think he wants to win as many Tour de France stage wins as possible. And I actually wonder, we of course don't have view into his contract, but I wonder how financial incentives are built around stage wins and do they incentivize him financially not winning and holding back to support his teammates. I don't know how you would structure a contract in such a way, but typically if you win a tour stage, I have to assume you're getting a large bonus probably. And for him, they don't want him doing it because he could do it much more often than he is, but they really need him to ride 
for the team. And then they, you know, they have that, at least last year, they had the further complication of the two GC riders approach. Yeah, which is funny because when you're watching this, it almost seems like Primo's, I guess Primo's crash is stage five and was distanced on stage four. So maybe they knew internally that this was the Yona show, but yeah. I don't ever really talk about him. It's never, well, let's get into stage five is, is super interesting. Looking back, I had forgotten how good of a stage this was over Perry Bay cobblestones. Um, it's all going to plan. And then Jonas, yeah, drops his chain, gets a bike. The problem with Yumbo is Jonas is like five, nine, five, 10 this is a Dutch team. So everyone's super tall. Like everyone's six, two, six, three on that team. You could be on that team. You could be new winner Laporte, but he takes a bike from like a six, two, six, three rider and it's way too big. And he just like keeps getting on bikes from two tall riders. Finally, he gets his new bike. It's a total shit show. Wout just keeps going. Did you actually see Wout rides by him and just like looks at him at one point and then <laughs> yeah, just keeps going? Yeah, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. But, and then this is where it gets super complex, where I have a hard time even putting my finger on like, what is going on here? What's the right decision? What's the wrong decision? I almost think that ended up working out for them because everything works out for Jonas. He gets on the right bike. He's got the team around him. And even Roglic crashes on a hay bale, which is like completely unacceptable that a hay bale would just be in the road at the biggest race in the world. They, they even send a rider back for him. So Jonas is like less teammates than he wants, but it's going well. He's getting back to the front group. Wout sits up, drops back. He gets to eat, take on you know food and drink for the riders behind. And then meets up with him and he's coming off like this little rest period because he's just been sitting in that group in the front. And he like, I had forgotten how much time he takes back on Pogacar. Pogacar was like over a minute ahead of them at one point, drilling it. Wout pulls it back to 13 seconds. So I had forgotten that he ate that much time into Pogacar. And then that's where it like starts to swing around again. And you're like, wow, you're just lucky this guy's on the team because he clearly could have won the stage. He just saved you basically a minute in GC time. And maybe made the right decision by staying up the road so he had the option to drop back and help you instead of like burning all his energy trying to just get you back up to the front. But I do think in that moment he was thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to win this stage. See you never, Jonas. The footage that they had from inside of the race in that stage and in general also, I think it's giving us a look at what might race coverage look like if it were modernized beyond, say, like 1986. And just all of the chaos that's happening, you don't really get a view of that when you're watching an overhead helicopter shot or the moto cam. And I know it, that it's pretty complicated given the the number of riders. Like it would be very hard to always have the right shot when a crash is happening or there's a bike change. But wow, that footage was really striking. It just was incredible to see the level of chaos and danger in the race. Um, you know, like when Roglic was on the ground, I don't know if you remember this shot, but the team car is pulling over and they're just riders, you know, yeah. going 35 miles. And I was yeah. like, you know, and I that's was... hap- that's happening, what, 50, 100 times in a race? Yeah, they're not even thinking. I was, th- I was thinking about that because like they're not even thinking about it. Like, oh, this could be bad because it's like, well, I got to go through here at 40 miles an hour. And like, that's just what I do. I did think right. that was the strongest part of this documentary was like the technical execution and then the, these guys are obviously great at it like if you watch try to survive it's yeah. incredible the shots they get i did almost think it was better like you could just watch this series and not watch the tour and you get a pretty good insight into the racing like it was it was really impressive how well they did this 
So Spencer, we're going to have to wrap here in a moment so I can go disrupt an industry and you can get on with disrupting an industry as well. But question I have for you, Pagacha, not in the series. We're two episodes in in this recap. What's the impact? I kind of liked it, to be honest, because he's this looming menace. And if you remember first seasons of Drive to Survive, there was no Mercedes, no Ferrari. And it just kind of created this sense of like, oh, it's like a monster lurking below the surface that you can't even see. And it is a bit menacing. I, I kind of like that Pogacar wasn't in it because it's this guy. He's like kind of the smiling assassin, never seems rattled, seems to be, to be able to do whatever he wants. And you like don't know anything about him. You don't know about the team. I, I actually, from a dramatic point of view, I thought it helped the documentary. What did you think? So far, I'm enjoying it. And I like, again, I talked about that moment in passing when Wout walks past Bagacha while he's cooling down following that Paris-Roubaix stage. Little snippets like that, I think, uh, heighten the tension in the storytelling. And yeah, what's happening off camera that we don't see I'm liking it so far and I'm and, hoping that we get a season two and that he's in it. And the funny thing about the snippet with Wout is like outside the tour, these guys are still rivals. Like as we know now, no spoilers, sorry for spoilers, but like Pogacar wins tour of Flanders this year over Wout drops Wout on his own home turf. And then it like yeah. just added a bit of context for me. I'm like, he's razzing him during the tour when he's, when he's the favorite to win. Wout's there, like getting getting his cute little stage wins, and like Pagacha is kind of mocking him for it. I I really liked it. I thought it's like, wow, this guy, as you said, like is no joke, a no joke competitor. And then it's funny to think that it's like, oh, and I'm going to come over to your specialty next year and just absolutely dominate you. And so it just creates this. He's like the perfect villain, and I, he's a perfect villain because he's not really unlikable and he's not mean. He's just kind of has that that edge to him that I think you think Jonas lacks. I also, when I was watching the Perry Roubaix stage in Unchained, I couldn't help but think about how Wout lost Perry Roubaix this year and how that probably stung so much more because he knew he could have won that stage in the tour bad enough to lose Perry Roubaix the way he did, but he also blew the chance to take that stage win the previous summer at the tour. Yeah, I mean, he, this guy, that's got to be part of the tension there where he's like, see, you, the moment this is released, that course is released, he looks at that stage and thinks, I've got to win this. And then this annoying little GC rider gets in the way and I'm not able to win. What Like if you're coming, if you made the Wout Van Art documentary, that's what it would be. It's like, I'm one of the best to ever do this. And this Danish guy wants me to not race and work for him. So it is, that tension is is there. It's It's real in Yumbo. And then it's, a level we haven't even discussed really. It's like, well, below Wout, there's Dylan Van Barl, there's Christophe Laporte. These are really good riders who then have to work for Wout and sacrifice their own chances. Like Laporte, I guess he does get a stage win at this tour, but you don't even see the guy in the documentary. And he would be probably a green jersey, like a serious green jersey competitor. No one knows what the green jersey is because they don't explain it in this documentary, but he would probably be able to challenge Wout pretty competitively for that. And he's not even mentioned in this, really. Yeah. No mention, but we'll go deeper. We'll do a, you know, let us know. Do you want to hear more? Do you want us to go oh, episodes three, four? We're going deep. for my own back. therapy, I need, I need to get through this with you because it, yeah. it gets messy. I've got a lot of takes on episodes three and four. We'll be back. I just have to get the kids to bed a little earlier. It's, uh, it's tough. It's, it's light, very late here in the summer. I know. I must be. I yeah. was thinking about you. It's got to be brutal. 
Yeah. And, you know, we, we're going to have to talk a bit about the pregame strategy for when we're out there in Lawrence in October, which I know everyone's wondering about. So, yeah, we'll be back. All right. Well, thanks, Andrew. And have a great have a great flight to Riyadh for, uh, okay. for your meetings. Yeah. Bye. See ya.